This is the CineSnob Podcast. Welcome to episode 162 of the CineSnob Podcast. I'm Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania. And, Cody, we have I'm... a third mic today. Oh, Yeah, I'm Jocelyn yeah. Duran. Jocelyn Duran, welcome. Thank you so much. So, Jocelyn, uh, you and I used to work together. Uh, I don't think for very long. Right. We overlapped uh, over in uh, News 4 San Antonio here. Back at the uh, the old WOAI KABB uh, Megaplex over there. Mm-hmm. Megaplex. Um, <laughs> I think you might be overselling <laughs> it a little bit. I mean, it's uh, it was a... Uh, Duopoly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's yeah. Anyway, um you were a reporter. Right. And then uh you I got was at- an MMJ. So oh, an MMJ. Mm-hmm. That means I- a reporter that gets paid less and does more. <laughs> exactly. So um you left the biz though, right? I did. Yes. I'm now in just communications. Um that- yeah. That's 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 the path a lot of people take out of news. Absolutely. Is, news uh, is tough. Yeah, I've been doing it for 20 years now, so um, it's a little brutal. But yeah, uh, so um, you had uh, messaged me um, asking if uh, if you could join in the fun here. And uh, you've got a pretty uh, a pretty extensive uh, actual like talking film background. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Jocelyn. Yeah, sure. So um, reporting was actually kind of a consolation prize for me. Um, I had gotten into that just sort of you know, to kind of please my parents during school, you know, you can't just be a film student, you have to have something that you can actually do (laughs) once you graduate. Right. Um, So I always like to to go back to the beginning. And uh, I think I was probably just 10 or 11 years old when I watched Reservoir Dogs for the first time. (laughs) How did an 11 year old girl watch Reservoir Dogs? (laughs) Way too young to watch that. Um, It was a friend's, you know, older brother who was like, here, you know, you guys need to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And I became obsessed. Like, I I just loved Tarantino. I, you know, just could not stop watching all his films. And then that went to other directors and other directors. So, yeah, that kind of started it all off for me. And then you, so you went to the University of Texas, correct? That's, that's right. I was a film student there, film and journalism. Um, and I wrote for the Daily Texan. I was a film critic there. What was, what were some of the films you reviewed while you were there? Sure. Well, um, I heard y'all talking about Brick earlier uh, in the later episode or an earlier episode. Um, I was able to interview Ryan Johnson, which was really great. He's such a a film nerd and so nice. Yeah. Just really great. Um, Who else? I actually got to introduce myself to Quentin Tarantino when I was a film student there. And um, he he did those screenings at the original Draft House. Oh, yeah. Colorado. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I literally walked up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Tarantino, I saw Reservoir Dogs when I was way too young. And, you know, I'm a film student now. And I just, you know, you're my hero. And he was like, oh, thank you so much. He was so, so let's nice. See those, let's see those feet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I did start, you know, like, okay, thank you. Okay, I'm going to go walk away. I'm a young girl. And, <laughs> you know, he has got that <laughs> reputation. Um, but, yeah, so I was uh, just a film student loving life. And then. Um, like I said, I got into reporting and then of course we crossed paths and it's kind of funny because, um, I knew you liked movies and we kind of talked about it a little bit when we're working together, but I think during this quarantine, everyone's kind of, you know, just kind of assessing their lives (laughs) and I, (laughs) you know, their future and, and what life means. And God, I miss movies so much. 
I had a, a dream that I was a film professor and I woke up and I was like, that is what I want to do. I want to, I want to get back into movies. Um, so I messaged you and gosh, you were so kind to invite me on. So thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. No, it, it's, you know, um, like I'm like I uh, I was mentioning to Cody before um, we used to have a third our, our third mic was our our friend Kiko who right. of course started this whole Cinesnop thing and as he got busier with kids and and um, uh, he's Life. now uh, he's now he his reviews are on Rotten Tomatoes so he doesn't need us <laughs> but um, um, it's it's nice to have the third mic we've been doing these shows these other shows with. Uh, with a guest and it's um it's been nice to have um someone else to bounce opinions off of um you know other than just cody and myself not that not that we don't you know often disagree but it is nice to have a, another take yeah um so yeah um yeah i mean it's 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 fun to have people on to talk you know it's just uh and it's it's amazing how much this uh quarantine has made people open up and realize hey i can just jump on anywhere in the world right and, and start talking about this stuff because cody and i've been doing this remotely for years since i moved up to austin you know we used to be in the same room yeah. which now seems like an eternity ago and <laughs> no kidding it wasn't even like e even then it was probably completely unnecessary yeah uh, it was <laughs> but uh well, yeah. i mean i personally i it was strange for me to get screeners that weren't DVDs. That's how long it's been since I've reviewed. Oh, wow. Yeah, they used to be uh, mailed to us, those DVDs, and now... They, they still do that. Well, yeah, and yeah. but getting a digital, you know, screener was kind of a foreign thing for me, but... Well, the disc, the disc kind of went away for anything other than award season stuff, because we used to get, like, like, Magnolia and Sony Pictures used to send... Uh, discs they were like the last holdouts and then that i mean it's all digital now throughout the year up until the very end and it's so much more convenient if you've been doing discs for a while it's, it's so much it, better it is tough though because some of them don't play nice with the uh, like a, a, t a chromecast or whatever oh i didn't tell you this is nobody gives a shit about this but i uh, <laughs> I, I got i got an like a brand new apple tv and now everything plays nice like all the screener stuff works with my Apple TV now. It's amazing. Oh, with AirPlay? Yeah, it all works super smooth. Well, oh, I have Apple TV too. I don't have Apple TV Plus though. I need to get that. Mm. You mean <laughs> get the seven day thing and watch the Beastie Boys? Yeah, yeah. and then cancel it. It's fine. <laughs> It'll be fine. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, um, we get uh, like tons and tons of DVDs every year for screeners, and it's that stack is still overwhelming. When it comes down to it, you're like, holy shit, do I really have to – like, because some studios, like, Neon sends, like, a book, basically, of mm -hmm. DVDs, you know, and that's – you know, usually they're kind of off the wall. Of course, this past year they had Parasite. Um, and mm -hmm. then is it Magnolia that sends, like, the envelope of 20 discs, Cody? Yeah, because Mag Magnolia and Magnet t are together, and so oh, yeah. it's literally, like, a couple dozen in, like, this giant fat package that – it's just there's no possible way anyone gets through all of those. When you were uh, with the Daily Texan, Jocelyn, did you go to uh, the screening, uh, the the preview screenings at theaters? Yeah, I did. Um, and actually, when I was there, one of the one of the sort of biggest moments for me was I did a junket in New York with um, oh. Ang Lee for Brokeback Mountain. So I got to interview Heath Ledger. Oh, and wow. Michelle Williams. And, and that was like this crazy moment where, you know, I'm in my 20s and I'm like terrified <laughs> to just be in the same room as these you know uh professional critics 
Um, but that is something, I mean, being able to be in the same room, Larry McMurtry was there as well. I was like, oof, that was like, did he write that book? He He did. Yeah. It was a short story that it was based on, I think by him. Um, and yeah, that was like, I think I peaked. That was like it for me. I've been to a few junkets. Um, my biggest one was probably the 21 jump street junket. Uh, in that was in Austin during South by. Jonah Hill was a dick to me for the second time. <laughs> um, I can't tell you how much joy I derive out of watching those, those videos of Jonah well, Hill being an asshole for absolutely no reason. I know, and, and like he's he's supposed to be this super nice guy. I mean, he's. I mean, you're not the only one. If it makes you feel any better, right? There's, there was horror stories on Twitter recently about that. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I'm just there doing my fucking job. Yeah, yeah. but it uh, was Egon from Ghostbusters. He was a to me really yeah. the late harold ramus yeah duh. i feel bad you know what happened defaming someone he was just i think a little condescending maybe it was because i was a girl maybe who knows but he just kind of talked down to me a lot what was this for uh oh gosh i don't even remember no i'm sorry it's uh yeah it was it was i'm gonna have to look it up it was something <laughs> uh harold ramus and it was South by Southwest, early 2000s. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Oh, it may have been something like... Uh, it would have been like year one year, or yeah, something. Yeah, I was thinking year one. That in was which, in which case, he would have had reason to be grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, year one was uh, was 2009. Yeah, that's probably what it was. I think we were just doing a retrospective with him, like a, a, a Q&A kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure he was just having a bad day. Maybe he, you know, just got up on the wrong side of the bed that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we um, we uh, did. Uh, I did a few of the Dallas ones too, um, and they would, like fly me up there. It was crazy. Um, but saying you peaked with that, I would disagree because junket people are way different people than like regular in the film critic circles. Okay, so um, it was good to experience it, but maybe not, you know, just do that. And I, I don't want to cast any stones on people we may be in a film critics association with, but a lot of these people are like fame chasers. Um, you know, they yeah. may their their goal is to like pose with a fo- a fo- pose for a photo with these people, right? And, and only uh, post positive reviews. That was right. a big thing. It was it was sort of uh, interesting, you know, being told that you you can't really write a negative review when they fly you places and i was like oh yeah journalistic uh, integrity is not really here thankfully i never really saw any bad movies um same who can complain about brokeback mountain i mean right of course and i i did uh i i loved 21 jump street and i did uh the campaign was another big one i did with will ferrell and zach galifianakis and i i enjoyed the movie uh but you know it wasn't great but it was still i was able to write a positive review legitimately uh but it's it, it is a weird it's such a weird life because like they give you a per diem like so that they flew me to dallas and uh got put up in the ritz carlton hotel wow it was bonkers yeah um and they give you like a per diem of like 85 bucks per day to spend at the hotel um and it, so like you can just get room service for free and then like it was um it was right next to the American Airlines Center, so like all the NBA refs were staying there. So like I got on the elevator with Bennett Salvatore. <laughs> it was a weird. I was like, is that fucking Bennett Salvatore? But uh, yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird life. Most this is the most fun. The junket stuff. I I hate interviewing people, and I hate I hate like the formal interview process of it. 
and I really hate red carpet stuff. I don't know, Cody, if you ever did any of the red carpet stuff, but that stuff sucks. No, and I actually I I've only done one um I don't a round table interview. I um I did at South by Southwest there was one for bad words and I did one with Jason Bateman and oh, yes. then another one with Catherine Hahn. And after that I was like, I'm never doing that again. I hated that. Because it's a because it's everyone fighting over the chance to say something and and their questions are like so what were your favorite comedies I'm like oh this is such a waste of time <laughs> <laughs> and and so uh, I I've only ever done like one on one stuff I won't mess with red carpet or round tables or anything like that anymore yeah uh, Jocelyn did you do any, do any of that during South by when you were here no thankfully I I wrote for their brochure so I got the gold pass but then by the time you know the screenings were happening I was off you know the clock I was just there enjoying. Um, what's the so that was nice what's the coolest thing you saw at south by uh like movie I wise. To, yeah thank you for smoking i think was a was one that oh. opened i mean and that kind of really shook up you know just the movie industry it was so different than a lot of things that were out at that time um so that one was a great one uh, i can't really think of any other ones right now Co- cody and i love to talk about the the disaster artist screening we were at oh uh, i bet that was just so much fun and that had come like the was that before or after Baby Driver? That was after Baby Driver, right? That was after Baby Driver. And Baby yeah. Driver was an awesome time too. I liked. I I didn't like the movie as much, but um, well, that that was a cool thing because it they had like a DJ there beforehand, and like it was a full on party atmosphere. And you're just fucking like two feet away from John Hamm. Yeah. Like, God damn, that is a handsome man. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we're in Edgar Wright's. Uh, you said that out loud too, Jared. It was I know weird. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's that salt and pepper beard god um i think you and i and, and kiko are in um <laughs> you and i and kiko scott ackerman and uh doug uh, benson were mm-hmm. all sitting side by side what a <laughs> yeah. weird fucking by the way jocelyn cody and i have seen more movies with doug benson than we have like with anyone else okay. for whatever reason and i don't know why it's just a random thing like we were behind him in line once at south by and uh shocker he had the largest font on his phone i wonder why he, <laughs> why he can't see so well and then when i saw rogue one here the press screening he was just there randomly it's i don't know i don't know what doug benson does but he just he's stalking shows you obviously uh, yeah <laughs> yeah he really gives a shit about me he's the only one though uh did you ever go to fantastic festival before i your did time? no 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 i worked fantastic fest when i was there okay he's the only celebrity or only person of note that I've ever seen go to Fantastic Fest that doesn't love everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, that, that doesn't absolutely gush over everything that's that's happening there. No, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Austin Film Festival. Oh. I get him confused. Cody's bitter we, enemies. We don't, talk, we don't talk about that one. <laughs> it could have been both, honestly. Speaking of people that only want positive coverage. Yeah. <laughs> shit. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, uh, welcome, Jocelyn. It's great to have you here. Um, Thank you. So we're going to move on now to, uh, to to a little bit of news. So just to lay this out, um, there's been a lot happening with uh, everybody being in quarantine and the video on demand really taking off. And Cody, you have a special thing you've been following all week and fighting with people online about mm-hmm. um, regarding. Uh, oh, well, first of all, uh, uh, before we get to that, sorry, and I, I just totally forgot that you wanted to mention this first um the the next biggest thing after scoob which we talked about last week hitting vod uh before uh, instead of going to the theaters is the the newest judd apatow movie the king of staten island Mm -hmm. starring pete davidson 
Yeah. Uh, so this this was something that was supposed to come out. Well, it's supposed to premiere at South by Southwest and then come out uh, in theaters uh, on June like 16th or something like that. Um, it, it's coming out uh, on VOD now on June 12th through Universal. And so this is another to me it was a it was a pretty crazy example of a like a well-known commodity like Apatow and not just producing but directing a movie um who's had a lot of box office success um taking you know the studio's going to take a risk by putting that out there and i think that you know it's one thing to have trolls world tour make a ton of money because it's in in being a family movie and you know entertaining kids for for hours during the quarantine but this is going to be like a really interesting test i think to see what happens with like a rated R comedy, especially since we've been talking kind of ad nauseum recently about how like the, uh, the studio comedy is sort of like a, a dying thing. And, um, and it would make a lot of sense that it would have another life. Cause you know, we've talked about stuff about like, why don't they just dump this on Netflix? Um, when it comes to like the studio comedy. So, uh, I'm interested. I'm really interested actually to see what happens with this, especially, you know, seeing how much, uh, you know, pool that Apatow has, um, and seeing if it transfers to and translates to VOD. It's weird to me that we haven't seen anything from it yet. Right. I totally uh, agree. I've been waiting to see that trailer for a long time and can't find it anywhere. Can't find a lot about it. Well, it, it was supposed to premiere at South by, mm-hmm. um, and it was going to premiere like it's not a, a it wasn't a work in progress thing. It was a like the world premiere, right? Um, I believe as, that's the case. Yeah, because I think Trainwreck premiered there, but it was a work in progress, if I recall correctly. That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Um. So I, I'm just look. I don't know what the world's opinion is of Pete Davidson. Um. I know mine is not the best. Um. But and then this Apatow is is not really been on his game. I don't think since. Um. You know, I, I think his comedies, I, while they're funny, I don't know that they they stand the test of time, like socially anymore. If that makes sense. Um, ah, I don't know. I because I, I think that I I'm of the belief that Forty Year Old Virgin and Knocked Up are two of like the best studio comedies. No, I mean of I the think last like twenty years. I think they're. I mean, they're still funny, but I mean, are they problematic now? Is what I mean. I think. I I think knocked up possibly more so than forty year old virgin, but maybe. Jocelyn, do you have a do you have a, an opinion on these movies? Is, yeah. is it something that was like this is like your college years, right? Right. Well, I I think you know Judd has kind of a way of making not careers, but kind of pulling people back into things, or maybe highlighting someone that is on the cusp of being famous, sort of like um, you know with funny people. And when that was kind of Sandler's comeback, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was it was what everyone thought was going to be his comeback, and then he went back to making deal movies for Netflix for <laughs> called Ridiculous Six right. or whatever the hell, yeah, with wigs and stuff. But but I don't know. I I think he's kind of trying to make you know Pete Davidson like a thing almost. It's it's sort of like it started getting buzz, and you know he has this kind of underground following of people who really like him. Pete Davidson, yeah, like really because I. Mean, I- yeah, I still love I, SNL. Well, I watch I, yeah, it all the time. And, we do too. And he has um, such big fan. Like people just love those dumb videos that he makes. I, I'm still kind of curious as to what it was that that I. I, and I don't want to sound like an ass, but I don't really know what it is that Pete Davidson has 
that's like comedically like that that makes him stand out. I, I feel like he's been I, I he can be funny and I think he's hilarious when he's being himself or like a, a, a tweaked version of himself, but I don't really know I, I'm curious what it what it was that got him on SNL in the first place. Uh, I think that whole underdog thing. Maybe. And he uh, was also he was also pretty young when he got to SNL as well, and I think that was part of it too, is just having a young voice on yeah. the show. But I don't know that he's really um you know, I I mean memorably he was twenty when he when he joined SNL. Yeah, I think that's definitely it. I think it was kind of like, okay, SNL seems a bit old and you know, Lauren is is getting up there and then they sort of brought him in as sort of getting those really, you know, even younger than millennial people to start watching. I, I yeah, I get it. I, I just don't I just don't know what it usually seems like someone has to have something to stand out. Well, that's why I was so excited to see this trailer because it, it started getting buzz and people were talking about it and it's like, okay, let's see. Let's see what he can do. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe it's not a good thing. I don't know. I, it <laughs> seems it seems weird that we're less than 2 months out from a comedy, a big comedy release. Shit, less than a No, wait. What day is it? Yeah, so we're just over a month away from this release. And it even when it was going to be released in theaters and we haven't seen anything from it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, I, I'm I don't have high hopes personally. You're skeptical, but I can tell. I'm very skeptical. I I don't get Pete Davidson and maybe because I'm old, but uh, I just don't get the appeal of that type of guy. Because um, I, I don't. Re- and admittedly, I, I was sort of on the same boat. And then I think that big time adolescence kind of changed that for me. Where I really, I really started to understand a little bit more, and I know that you and I have differing opinions on that movie, but um, I, I, I kind of started to understand a little bit because I mean, I think the thing that people liked about Pete Davidson from SNL was when he would do Weekend Update as himself, like yeah, you know, like you were saying, when he's being some version of himself. I think he's he's the best version of that. So I think that that's why in these movies that you're seeing. Like big time adolescence, he's playing essentially himself, and in King Staten Island, it's it's not, you know, he's playing himself basically. There's a new character name and stuff, but it's his life story essentially. So is is fucking Machine Gun Kelly gonna be in <laughs> King of Staten Island too? Not not that I didn't think he was actually pretty good in um, Big Time Adolescence, but he I think was it's good, in his right? contract that he has to be in all of Pete's movies. <laughs> he's like his Rob Schneider. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, exactly. Man. There you go. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's hitting, uh, June 12th. So along those lines, Cody, you, uh, as I hinted at a minute ago, you had found this Wall Street Journal article that you sent to me and you published about on your Facebook wall. Mm -hmm. God, that sounds so 2009. (laughs) Sorry. Um, (laughs) you put it on your Facebook wall, Cody. Uh, and it has, uh, it's about the money trolls world tour made. Mm hmm. And uh, how Universal uh, says they're going to change their release strategy, and it really fired you up. It did. Well, I mean, if you go back and listen to years past of this show, I I seem to have prematurely (laughs) several times thought that there was a changing of the tide in the VOD world. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And to my credit, I think that some of them were legit. I think that Snowpiercer was like one of the first really big ones where Snowpiercer made millions and millions of dollars on vod and um, for harvey weinstein for yeah well that was problematic but um (laughs) so uh i think we've all been sort of wondering what kind of business trolls world tour would do because that was the first movie that the big movie that 
uh, skipped theatrical altogether and went straight to VOD. And um, we've been seeing like different reports of different numbers. And the Wall Street Journal reported that um, in the first three weeks that Trolls World Tour has been out, it has uh, garnered f- about 5 million rentals in the U.S. and Canada for a total of $100 million um, in, in, in rentals. And uh, the, the big news about that is that that's essentially this, the more, it's actually more revenue for Universal directly than Trolls did during five months of its theatrical run. So the big, the, the big thing that, the, and the reason why I kind of pointed this out to people was that the statistics come down to um, when a movie is uh, coming out theatrically, they have to share about 50% of the box office sales uh, with theaters. Uh, and as it turns out, when they go straight to VOD, the studio gets to keep 80% of that. So Universal has made um, uh, more than $77 million of revenue um, with $95 million in rental fees. So it's making more um, of that money back directly as revenue. So essentially the idea being that, um, movie studios now have greater incentive with the, um, with the greater amount of people renting movies to, uh, put them on VOD because they keep more of that money. So they, you know, so movie, so the, the reason that it intrigues me is that there's always these like low to mid budget movies and like, you know, anything up to like $50 million that, kind of get thrown out in theaters and get crushed by whatever big tentpole movie is out there um, and only, you know, struggle to make back its budget. And I think that for me, I see an opening there for VOD to make a real difference for those budget movies because uh, in order to make it more of a profit from the studio, just from their standpoint, it doesn't have to make as much money, but it also provides a legit alternative entertainment to the, you know, big budget blockbusters and going to the theater you know, stay home and rent a movie like they are doing with Trolls 2. And, and you know, you can... I, I think that, that there's a certain type of movie that can live in that space. And Universal has basically said that um, they're going to move forward and not only do theatrical stuff, but they're going to kind of increase the amount of uh, VOD stuff they do. That's not what he's, exactly what they said, though. It's, didn't they say they were going to do both at the same well, time? Well, it has later sort of been... Universal has kind of walked that back just a little bit. Um where where yes they're going to do both at the same time but i don't know that they necessarily mean day and date entirely they may mean utilize both platforms simultaneously well and this this of course pissed off the big theater chains amc basically sent an open letter that they were going to boycott all future universal movies yeah from one foot in the grave they sent that letter (laughs) hey but like that's the whole thing though like that's their whole i mean what do you want them to do cody (laughs) I mean, well, I mean what do you want them to do? It just I mean it just came off as I mean as 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 you know bluffing. I mean do you really think that AMC is going to sit out Fast and the Furious movies to make a point? You know? I just I didn't I mean, it, it didn't make any sense especially from a company teetering on bankruptcy. Well, but you, this is the thing that you and I have argued about before is you kind of, you kind of always argue this point where you you think the theater owner should be okay shooting himself shooting up somebody else shooting them in the foot and i mean that that's kind of the whole business model of this you know it's this agree this theatrical window agreement because nothing's stopping any any studio from releasing a film straight to dvd or vod right now mm-hmm. like nothing at all but the idea that there's more money to be made in theater revenue 
than there is in rentals or or downloads or whatever has has been the case so far. And obviously with this quarantine and everybody being at home and starved for new entertainment, that's obviously going to drive up the 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 interest in something like Trolls World Tour. Mm-hmm. But going forward, I mean, the big test I think is going to be this Scoob movie coming up next where no one's necess- you know, people aren't going to be as locked down in at, on May 15th as they were on April 15th or whenever the hell Trolls World Tour came out. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's there's no control to this experiment in other words there's no perfect storm of something there, there this it's a perfect storm of of things that have that have made this uh a, a, a ginormous hit and i don't know that you're going to get that in the future i i mean well, i the, there's nothing there's nothing telling me that that if you release fast and furious on vod that it's going to make you know the a billion dollars like it is when it's released in the theater well, and I think I think the big difference for me is that I I just think I I, I wish that it, we had the opportunity for people to have the choice because now it's becoming less and less about the theatrical experience specifically and more about the exclusivity of the way that the film is released because ideally and it would make sense that the theaters want to advocate for the theatrical experience and that's why they would want to have them there but they don't want people to have the choice they want the people to be forced to go see a movie in the theater rather than giving them the option to even watch it at home at but all. But why, why would they ever want to do that, though? That's the question I have. Why you. should they like, have control and the ability to determine that? That's what, that's, I mean, if a, a studio should be able to release a movie however they see fit. So, I, so why, I mean, yes, the theaters don't have, I mean, I get what you're saying, which is that the theaters have no choice but to take that position if they want to protect what they're doing. But that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't make it, like, a, a good idea. But but the idea is if you want to like if you want to be in the in the AMC business if you want to if you want to show your movies at AMC you got to play by their rules right I mean it's the same thing with the studio like if you want to show there because there's all kinds of um of 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 splits like a you know a Star Wars movie is going to be like ninety ten uh studio to theater just because you're getting the privilege of showing a Star Wars movie. For example, and you know the concessions that get sold with that and all the other bullshit. But the idea that that you want to do this together, you have to come to some sort of agreement. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't knock the premium VOD experience, but it's not the same. And I don't think people necessarily see it as the same. But it's not a, uh, it's not something I, I would imagine any theater that would want to be to sit on the sidelines and, and say and allow to happen I, I i i guess i just think that there is some sort of middle ground that can allow certain films to coexist because i think i mean it would i mean do, do either the theaters or the studios want these you know mid budget movies well, to well, just no. eat shit in the theater for three weeks well no but i mean uh, obviously trolls t- uh world tour was going to be a, a big hit Sure. For for what it was worth, because it was a proven for, proven uh, franchise and uh, it had the built in word of mouth already. But you know, like I, like the King of Staten Island, fuck it, who cares? Put it on VOD. No mm-hmm. one gives a shit. But you know, if it's if it's hey, this new Fast and Furious movie is hitting VOD and theaters the same day or a week apart or whatever. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, I I legit well, think that's a, an issue. Well, and and that's where I sort of that's where my viewpoints sort of. Fault, you know, and that's why I was, you know, specific to say these. There are, there's a certain type of movie that can live in this space, 
the problem is is that is that the the chains were saying we will not show any universal movies if they are going to violate that policy. Well, yeah, of course. No, but that means across the whole studio. So that doesn't mean that some universal movies can go to VOD and some go to theaters. They were saying across the board, we will not show universal movies if they're going to break the theatrical window. Well, so that I, that doesn't mean that there's room for both. It's either you go to theatrical or we don't show your movies at all. Yeah, so, I feel like that's, you know, famous last words. They're they're saying that, but who's going to hold them to that when, you know, no one else sort of says that? Well, but, but I mean, uh, Regal jumped in on that, too. Yeah, but uh, it, it's kind of like the last, you know, swan song of the dinosaurs. It's kind of like, okay. But every, everybody's been predicting the sword, downfall of the but... movie theater for since home video came out. Well, is that why, I mean, the the new Bond, I mean, they decided to push it back, not to release it. Because right. Because I think they know people want to go see it in a theater. They don't want to watch it at home. Right. And and they have a huge international market in China, which right. was, of course, the epicenter of all this. But then you think of, okay, uh you know, Top Gun 2 is going to be coming out. Are people going to want to watch that, you know, on their computer at home? Or are they yeah, going I mean, to be I, in a theater and have like yeah. a whole experience? And I think, uh, you know, there's – look, I don't want to sound like a, a, you know, some romantic for the movie theater experience. But a lot of people do – for- <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Cody. There's a lot of people do kind of relish that experience. And we've seen it. You know, you see it on social media with people like, oh, it's it's a great crowd at the whatever. You know, I'm kind of over going to the theater at this point, frankly. If I could watch everything at home, it'd be great. But, um, you know, I don't know that, especially coming out of this whole quarantine issue, I don't know that people are going to want to stay home necessarily. If they want to see a movie, they want to go out to a movie. I, I mean, I sort of think the opposite of that. I mean, have you seen the dipshits at the lakes and stuff? I mean, yeah, they don't give a fuck. Uh, yeah, of course. But I, I, I don't. I, I, but I think that. Well, I mean, there are. I mean, the the dipshits don't speak for everyone in mass. So I don't. But also, the renters don't speak for everyone in mass either. Right, but I mean, it's hard to argue five million rentals on. Yeah, but a... but that's like in the heart of a lockdown, and it's a kids' movie where there's no school happening. And like, that's... You know, but I, I saw people doing like you know screening parties, like having parties with their kids and doing like a whole thing. And for twenty bucks, that's way less than you know purchasing. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, and and um, I, I do think there's a market for that for sure. I mean, there's a market for. The idea that if you've got this family movie or whatever that you don't want to drag the whole family out to and pay, you know, 40 bucks just to get in the door. Right. And then. Yeah. So here's here's the reason why I think that it makes a big difference, because this was another statistic and not to just spew statistics here, because that's I know it's not the most fun thing. But uh, (laughs) but like so here's an example. So Universal at the beginning of quarantine sent out the Invisible Man. The Hunt, Emma, and Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always for 20 bucks each on VOD. Those movies made $60 million in rental uh, with $48 million of that going back to Universal. So Univer- uh, Invisible Man had made $64 million in the box office, and, and uh, the, those other three movies had made a combined $16 million. And the digital performances are the equivalent of $96 million in box office gross. There's no way those three movies would have made that much theatrically. So yeah, for sure. So I think so. I think that that that's why I'm saying that. I just think that these ideas. I wish that these ideas could coexist because because 
those there are there are those types of movies and, and those are all adult oriented i mean two two of them are are super heavy subjects about really heavy uh you know uh topics the invisible, the invisible man is one of those right <laughs> yeah and never rarely sometimes always is super dramatic and then the hunt is just a dumb you know r rated were you be- were you being serious i'm sorry about the invisible man being heavy I mean, it's a it's a movie ostensibly about domestic violence, so yeah, I, oh. <laughs> and gaslighting and stuff. Sorry, so I was, yeah, I was I was just being an asshole, but you know, I will. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a given, but um, <laughs> but yeah, so I I mean, I just think that you know that's to me that's eye popping that these movies that especially with with like the hunt and never rarely sometimes always and um uh and, and Emma those are movies that were never going to generate box office um. You know, even even you know, without a a, a, epi- a pandemic going on, uh, they would not have generated that much money. And so, you know, that's an interesting thing where these small budget, uh, uh, you know, smaller movies can really make a lot of money for these studios. And so, there's different avenues for them. So, I, I my my I I don't want the theatrical experience to be replaced by any means, but I don't see why these things can't coexist. Especially when it comes to movies that aren't that like the the movie theaters are not missing out on eighty million dollars from those three movies by having them be at home. They're they're just not. Those are the types of movies that people are going to stumble upon um, when they're at home looking for entertainment. I think. Well, I mean, I, I think at least half of those are art house movies uh, that is probably going to kill the art houses if that release strategy takes hold. Uh, that's a good point. I think that's the biggest thing here is that they're going to be the small, quiet movies that, you know, people j- just watch at home and, and pay two bucks for instead of 20 bucks. Right. Um, but again, you can't you you can't judge anything about what's happening right now as normal. You know, it's like, yeah, it made a ton of money for for Universal more than it would have in a theatrical release or more than it did in a theatrical release theatrical release uh but the circumstances are just mind-boggling mind-bogglingly different than the world had been two weeks before Mm -hmm. you know it's not it's not a situation there's there's no real comparison to be made here i mean look at last awards season you had half of the best picture nominations that were released on streaming services you know at maybe not at the exact same time as their release date but if not at the exact same time, a couple weeks later, and true, I mean, this true. is the, the the epidemic is or the pandemic is sort of moving that needle away from where it currently is. It's pushing it slightly over, and sure, it's going to move back, but it has still been pushed over before, and people have seen like, oh, this is a model that we can use, right? And I mean, Netflix is Netflix is kind of stacking the deck in that fight frankly i mean it's it's no coincidence that they are behind it they're looking right. for their oscar but but the other side of that coin is that all of those major chains boycotted all of those netflix movies from being theatrically shown there so so the only the only theatrical um releases that those got were in the smaller independent chains and things like that so like alamo Drafthouse and santicos were showing marriage story but right. uh but amc and regal and cinemark and uh, you know, all the others were not right. Um, which Where is you just don't a- go to see those movies, you go, you know, to see the Top Guns and the mm-hmm. and the James Bond movies. I just I, I, look. I'm I'm hesitant to to read too much into this personally, just because it's it's such a different you know uh, point in time. You know, there's nothing 
you know, how many how many people watched fucking Tiger King because it was just the newest thing everyone was talking about, you know, yeah. on Netflix. And then now no one's talking about Tiger King. At least I hope not. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it's it's not look, I mean, it's not it, it is. We will know more about this, I think, once we see what happens with Scoob and the King of Staten Island to see if it's a sustainable thing. And even then, you don't truly know because we're still going to be in the midst of it. It's just not going to be in total, you know, seemingly lockdown mode. But I think that this is this can be the beginning of like the the beginning of the turning of the tide. Right. <laughs> let's 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 put a pin in this and, and talk about it in five years <laughs> when something else happens for Cody to be calling this the the beginning of the turning of the tide. So, uh, yeah. Anything else before we move on to reviews here? Nah. No. Mm-hmm. All right. Everybody got another system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah for another, that, that'll hold me over for a couple <laughs> couple months at least. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to reviews. Here are this week's reviews. First up, we have Arkansas. Cause everything that glitters is not gold. Come on back with the Gatlins. A lot of people don't know about organized crime in the South, is that it's not that organized. What's with the cones? I thought the randomness of it might throw off a cop. I guess that's smart. I'm near the bottom rung of an outfit run by a man I've never met before, a man named Frog. I'm the boss. You may never refuse an order, and you may never quit. Pat Bright, park ranger. I'm with Frog. I've been ordered to intervene. Do not socialize with the locals. Do not draw attention to yourself. This is creepy. Do you like creepy? This is the debut directorial film. Directorial debut? That's how you say that. that That's how you say that word. Uh, For actor Clark Duke, who you may know from uh, The Office, sort of. For a mm-hmm. little bit. Uh, what else? He was in Kick-Ass, correct? Hot Tub Time Machine movies. Hot Tub Time, Time Machine. Machine. Uh, yeah. Uh, kind of um, uh, a low-key comedic actor. Uh, this is, I guess, his um, take on uh, sort of a, a Tarantino-ish, Soderbergh-ish something, mm-hmm. Coen Brothers-ish movie. Brothers. Jocelyn. Yes. What did you think of Arkansas? You know, I actually, I lived in Arkansas for two years when I was a reporter and I was, I had seen the preview and that kind of piqued my interest a little too. Cause I'm like, Oh, I love that when, when someone's from somewhere and they kind of want to, you know, show people what it's like to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had high hopes for this one and the cast is amazing. I mean, like John Malkovich, Vince Vaughn, uh, I was super excited to see Michael K. Williams. He's one of my favorite actors um, yeah. out there working right now. Uh, who Vivica A. Fox was in there. I was I was like, oh, it was just kind of like surprise after surprise for for the cast. Um, and I think, like you said, the Coen Brothers. It was going for. I, I saw some comparisons to Fargo, but for me, I was thinking about it. It really kind of tried to do a Lebowski thing, like kind of inept criminals. Did y'all get that? A little yeah. bit. I mean, the it's. I guess it, in that sort of, um, the, they're, they're a lot less lovable. But, but kind of trying exactly like it, it, it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, the Lebowski. I mean, the sorry, the Coen Brothers thing is pretty much like like guys that are put upon that all this stuff is put upon themselves. Like they're in the situation because of their own precisely doing. in this strange you know group of characters that come in and out of their lives, sort of. Um, that are a bit larger than life kind of a way. 
Right. Uh, yeah, I I mean, it was it was hard to get through. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is uh, um, like it, it's it it really comes across as a sort of, I think Cody, you mentioned this to me, like like Clark Duke saw uh, yeah one Tarantino movie and one Coen Brothers <laughs> movie and was like I got this yeah exactly yeah that's what I that's ex- exactly what I texted you yeah I, I and I think that that's that that is. I mean, look, I, I've been a fan of Clark Duke for a while. I don't know if either of you saw. There was this, um, there was a web series he did. It was, uh, it was him and Michael Sarah, and it was post Arrested Development and like a couple months before Superbad came out. It was called Clark and Michael, and it was a, a mockumentary where him and uh, Clark Duke and Michael Sarah were basically trying to sell a pilot, and and it was, uh, and like Tim and Eric were involved, and um. And a bunch of Arrested Development cast members, and it was great. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Clark Duke, and I've been a fan ever since. And and let yeah, I, I think the the thing is, it's trying to be uh, a Tarantino movie in like the scale of everything, um, in 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 like the span of of how things happen, and even like the chapter setup of everything, and the bouncing back and forth in time. It's not a it's not necessarily a linear a linear story. Um, because it bounces back and forth during time frames. And then it's trying to be a Coen Brothers movie in that, yeah, you're showing inept criminals or, or, um, or, or that kind of thing. Th- the problem is it doesn't do any of the legwork for any of those things to make sense because you're, you're instantly thrown into the characters between Clark Duke and then the other lead, uh, Liam Hemsworth. And like they're already like ball busting each other, but you, they're like meeting for the first, like first time. It just doesn't feel authentic. Um, I kind of don't know what Liam Hemsworth is doing in this movie because uh, he's essentially a, a blank slate of a character. I, I feel like he's because Clark Duke is trying to be comedic, at least, and Liam Hemsworth is a wet blanket that has like nothing to do. That's I totally even re- agree about remotely, that. Yeah, remotely interesting. And then what it tries to do after that is then build in like this epic crime story where after you're with everyone for the first, you know, 45 minutes, it goes back in time and it has like, it has a scene where we find out about Vince Vaughn's character and his history, and that scene takes forever to unwind. <laughs> and it was it, it it and it becomes at that point exhausting to watch because that's not the first time that they go backwards in time to Vince Vaughn, who's obviously telling a story of details that I just don't I just don't think are interesting to the main plot, especially when you spend forty five minutes establishing these two uh, t- two characters. In like a buddy uh, movie, um, albeit a weird crime buddy movie, but one nonetheless. And then you spend like thirty minutes with another character who had, you know, one minute of screen time. Uh, it just doesn't flow very well. And I think at the end, what you get is a movie that's not snarky enough to be um, to be like a black comedy. It's not epic enough to create this grand scale. It's not interesting enough. It's it's not. You know, the, even as criminals, if you want to look at it as being inept criminals, I don't really think they're inept enough. They're more oblivious to anything else. So you don't get any humor of their ineptitude, which I think is what makes something like the Coen brothers or even like Fargo when you have, um, you know, the Peter Stormeyer and the uh, Steve Buscemi characters who are sort of uh, inept criminals in their own way. And it just doesn't none of it passes the muster at all. I don't think. I just don't really get what uh, what the point of telling the story of Vince Vaughn's character added to the film, other than Michael K. Williams, who like (laughs) Jocelyn, you said he's great, but he's just kind of playing the same standard uh, Michael K. Williams role 
which is this sort of like tough guy who's also really clever and kind of self not self-deprecating but like really able to to cut to the chase of a conversation um i just don't understand what the fuck was happening like i, I don't i don't get it like it was a uh a double cross i guess and then then i don't really know how it ties into what happens in the present time other than it's just the same guy like i don't i don't well, it. I think it was a sort of a happenstance that they accidentally the two storylines kind of merged because not only was this the guy that they were looking for, but then all of a sudden his girlfriend just happened to know him and they, you know, just sort of happened upon this place where Vince Vaughn, you know, now is. Um which is really unlikely. It didn't make any sense yeah, that that could I happen. I, I, that they would just cool. accidentally run into this guy that they've been talking <laughs> about the entire movie. That this guy, that yeah, this this shitty pawn shop right. owner is Frog. Right. And then you get some resolution at the end with the twin storyline coming in. Um, but the whole thing felt like he had a list of things that he wanted to include in a movie. And then he just started, like, checking them off without it making any sense together at all. It's also funny how... So like how so much time is devoted to Vince Vaughn's backstory, like literally almost I mean, I would say close to half the movie is that and they like, how does he do that but never take time to contextualize John Malkovich's role at all? Right. Yeah, he's and, just sort of an eccentric weirdo Malkovich character. But but there's some connective tissue there that would explain how like you you can't even figure out what Malkovich's role in like the scheme of things is because. You think that Malkovich is the one running everything, and then you fi think it's Vince Vaughn, and then you figure out it's another group of people, and it just doesn't track. Like, it just doesn't make sense where he plays into it, especially when Malkovich, again, is set up to be a major character who just ultimately ends up being a footnote in in the, you know, the, the whole story itself. It's just, it's just a really, it's just a really lazy writing job to be perfectly honest with you and it's and there's not a moment and, and i think a lot of filmmakers struggle with this there's not an original moment in the movie like there's not an original bone in the movie it's a it's aping things constantly yeah and i mean the the whole like uh full of crazy needle drops i mean that's just a huge yeah. tarantino bite i will say you know besides the weird uh awkward concert scene at the beginning i liked the flaming lip soundtrack they did covers of sort of like uh, early seventies rock and roll, and I didn't mind that. I was actually a little surprised that it it, it did make me go back to listen to the original Gatlin Brothers, uh, <laughs> "All the Gold in California," because I love that song. But but yet the Flaming Lips concert was really out of place and awkward in the movie. Uh, yeah, I, I I I just I don't know. I, I don't I don't know what the point of this was, other than Clark Duke had some favors to cash in with with friends. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't understand what's happening in half this film, just because it's it's that weird late '90s Tarantino ripoff shit, that Two Days in the Valley, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. But but also, crap. but also, you don't get the sense that this came from a comedic voice. I don't think at any point, like Clark Duke is a comedy actor. Like he's not a drama. I mean, in, in this. Either, I, blame either. I blame Liam Hemsworth on for that because I totally get what you were saying about – I mean, I found his character funny and then he didn't have anything to work against with Liam who was just this like wet towel of a character. 
and it's like if they had been sort of if there was more interaction between them two as as you know sort of comedic characters i think it would have worked a lot better yeah it's almost as if liam hensworth didn't get the memo on the tone of the movie and it's just <laughs> exactly. like it was just you know, sleepwalking through it yeah. you know i mean it's it's not a well-written part but i think i, I liked his performance I just don't think it belongs in this movie at all. See, I don't even think it's an interesting performance. I don't even think he's really performing. I think that it's it to me it's such a neutral performance, especially how the character is written. Um it, No, I I think I think the most of the fault lies with how it's written and it's written like shit. <laughs> yeah. And the but. dialogue. Oh man, it was tough, <sighs> especially at the beginning. Like you said that yeah. first interaction between the two, it was really hard and, and like clark duke is he looks funny like he purposely looks stupid like i just i'm just not into it all right let's move this movie sucked what's your grades for this jocelyn all right i went with a c minus on this one c minus cody um i am also at a c minus for this one i'm gonna go three for three c minus i don't get i don't get the point of this it was I did like uh, I, I, Eden Brolin was the first time I'd seen Eden Brolin. Yeah, she was great. I liked her. Um, I don't think, again, I think her character was really poorly written because I thought like for a second when when uh, when uh, Hemsworth cracks that dude over the head, I thought like she was turning like against them when she oh, picks up the knife. That would have been interesting. Yeah. But yeah. the interesting was not in Clark Duke's wheelhouse in no. this one. So. <laughs> All right, let's oh, move on. Sorry, one one quick thing too. Uh, this movie comes out on Tuesday, oh, May fifth. Yes. It was it was originally scheduled for the May May first, so you will be able to find this in a couple of days for rental. Um, yeah. through through Lionsgate, and also this was the first of a few movies that we'll be talking about today that was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. I forgot to mention that. Oh God, Cody. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and move on to our next movie, A Secret Love. So this is our standard one bedroom, and it has a balcony. We have not had any same-sex couples, but we do have family members that are. If there would, would they be accepted? Because we are a couple. They've been in my life since day one, and they've always been anti-Terry and anti-Pat. Didn't know they were gay till three years ago. How long have you guys been together? <laughs> 65 and a half. 65 and a half years. All these years, they've been together, and they've hid this secret from us. Holy shit. You were pretty cute, my dear. They were playing baseball. Women didn't do that. They had the courage to do something so different in a time when difference was not looked on as something good. This is a Netflix documentary from the strangest uh, producing partners I think I've ever seen in uh, Ryan Murphy and Jason Blum. It is a Blumhouse movie, yes. A Blumhouse movie. Um, but it is a documentary about uh, two elderly women who have been in a relationship for like 70 years mm-hmm. um, and just sort of uh, uh, it's almost like a little slice of life, I think, mm-hmm. more so than anything else. But, Cody, what did you think of A Secret Love? Well, I, I, it is it is a slice of life because it does tell the story of two people sort of in a vacuum. Um, uh, they're not literally in a vacuum. I mean, they are uh, two people. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> two uh, two people uh, who are um, you know in this in this decades long relationship. And I think when you have a documentary, especially that's talking about a specific story, I think that the one thing that documentaries get wrong when they do that is they don't contextualize it enough. 
So it's more or less just their story, but without putting it into context. And I think one thing that a secret love does really well is it contextualizes um, their experience. So it's not just what their, you know, their stories, but, you know, I think their stories are interesting for the, for the most part. Um, you know, you have someone who, um, one of the, one of the women was uh, a female uh, in the female baseball leagues um, that was a league of their own was based on. She was. Um, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in those leagues. And, and then, uh, and, and and I think that they they had lived very interesting lives, but where you start to really see um, the uh, the um, you know the the real con- uh, context of it all is having them talk a little bit about um, what it was like to be gay in the fifties and sixties, which I think is something that is not really um, stories that aren't really told very much, um, at least that I have seen. Um, and so I found it really interesting and kind of. Uh, you know, you even see them in in what is almost present day. You know, trying to coordinate medical stuff and referring to each other as cousins. You know, even seventy years into their relationship, and I think it's it's really eye opening to see you know not only the story about how uh, you know they they grew up, but also how they had to face these issues within their families and um, within culture, and they had to hide things from people, and um, you know. Uh, and, and I think that um, it does a, it does a couple things uh, really well outside of that, which is I think that it tells um, within the family uh, story. There's a lot of interesting uh, dynamics that happen between um, one of the um, one of the women and her niece, and, and they're trying to coordinate, you know, spending their final years um, in a place where they're in a home, basically. And there's a there's a really kind of powerful confrontation scene that happens um, in the back half of the movie that's. That's sort of like a, a, a I man, I and I hesitate to say I enjoy watching a major confrontation in a documentary, but I do kind of I think those are the most fascinating things to watch unfold. And I think that um it was a you know, what you get is like a really kind of powerful display of love and affection. And I think the the other thing it did, which was kind of a um an unexpected consequence, is it really is kind of like a meditation on getting old and aging and um and just really you know, like you'll see months or even like a year goes by and see steep drop offs and how uh, in right. in these declines in them. And of course, they're in their 90s. So it's it's to be expected. But still, it's sort of like and you see them together, um, you know, still in love in their 90s, you know, having lived, you know, this, again, secret life for so many years. And I just found the whole thing to be incredibly powerful and really sweet. And I really loved it. Jocelyn, what's your take? Yeah, I think um, I think you like that confrontation scene so much because we were finally getting a little more insight into them and mm. into their who they are. Um, and I think that was probably a product of them having to be a secret for so many years is that they're so guarded. And I think the filmmaker is related to uh, one of the women. I think I read like a great nephew. Um, so you would expect there to be a little more of an openness. But again, I think they've had to, you know, lie and hide for so many years that, that those moments where you really get to, you know, learn more about them and, and get insight into their relationship are few and far between outside of that confrontation um, and maybe a little, uh, towards the end when they, when they have their, you know, uh, wedding scene, you see it a little more. Um, so I wish that they had somehow, you know, drawn the women to come out a little more 
um, than what we did rather than just go through the chronological, you know, events of their lives, which were super fascinating. I mean, I loved the whole American League um, storyline. That was kind of a surprise. Yeah. Um, but but other than that, I think they remained super guarded about their relationship. And I feel like that's um, they're very Midwestern. Yeah, uh, these Canadian. Are can- yeah, <laughs> they're well, they're polite. Canadian women, but they lived a lot of time in uh, most of their time in Chicago. So they've got that kind of Midwestern guardedness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just I don't know that there's enough here, though. I mean, it's it's obviously the the stories that you have uh, of being gay in the fifties, and, and you know the the kind of awful things that 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 would portend for these people is is kind of eye opening, even still. You know, it's not really a story about that. It's a story about now. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there there's some scenes where you you talk. They talk about how um, one of the women, um, uh, Terry, who's kind of the frailer, older woman uh, who played in the baseball leagues, was uh, hesitant to tell her her niece that she was gay because she figured she'd disown her. And she didn't tell, I mean, they're both old women now, like her and her niece are both old ladies. And she finally tells her. And of course she's accepting of it. You know, I'm curious how that would have gone, you know, 20 years ago, you know, when it wasn't so accepted even now. Mm -hmm. Um, But like Cody, you mentioned, it is like kind of a meditation on aging, but I just, I, I don't know that, that, the, their love story plays a lot into that. I mean, I, and maybe that's, you know, seeing that they're, you know, they have the support of their family and they're, you know, you know, they're accepted by the, their loved ones that are around still. And, and I just don't really see the conflict in that part of it. I mean, they are, the, this is really, to me, it's more about aging than it is about their love story is how it comes across. Well, I think the love, I mean, the, the part of the love story too is that they, is that, you know, it, 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 I think just it was a hidden secret and it was still, it was still something that they were actively hiding from people even as they were in the later stages of their life and in their nineties, you know, there, that's, you know, the movie opens on them getting doctor's reports and saying, you know, I'm looking, I'm calling on behalf of my cousin, you know, there's still, it's, there's no one that didn't know. There's no one that didn't know. Well, I mean, yeah, but I get that. But they're still, but they are still protecting this thing, and so living, I, I got, right. living with having to protect that thing is a is is I think the most one of the interesting things. And yeah, I, I think that the the guarded nature of everything is is maybe a, a theme that plays throughout because I think relinquishing control, um, in in sort of you know, um, you know, agreeing to go to a home or finding a, the right home or the right place, and in the battle and the tug of war that they had feels like gripping onto something because they are so used to being guarded and so used to playing everything um you know close to the vest that in the end you you know it's it's assumed that's that that things are being hidden from family members or they're not getting everything so i think that it does a, i th- i mean i personally think that, that that does a great job of sort of you know kind of you know showing parallels in those things but again i i i i understand what you mean but i also think that um you know, it's 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 a unique enough story to where I was I was enjoying finding out more information about them. Though I do think that the more interesting part is, um, you know, the the idea of the aging and, and and that kind of thing. But I think I just think that it's sort of complicated by the fact that they are essentially living hidden lives up until, you know, I mean, 
something you know i i don't really consider it a spoiler but up until you know they get married when they're in their 90s after being together for 70 years i mean just that in itself i think is is a is kind of a you know fascinating I, I, thing to watch yeah and i i, I get it and I, I mean i understand that you know these women live through unspeakable times when it came to this sort of thing but i, I just don't think the movie i think the movie is more about it the way I saw it is it came across more about aging than it did about their love story. And I, I mean, it, you know, at the end of the day, and, and maybe I have a different point of view just because it's, it's not something I would care about or consider, you know, that these are two women that live together. It's just, there's this couple that is grappling with age and it, you know, it reminded me of my grandparents before my grandmother died, you know, just sort of the idea that, like all of a sudden they're not capable of taking care of themselves. You know, they need to have someone come in and, um, you know, take care of the, you know, clean the house and cook dinners and things like that. And it, it became more about that for me. And, and, you know, I, I don't fault it for that, but I think it, it kind of leaves some on the table because it's only an hour and 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. So it leaves some of this stuff on the table like this, um, you know, there's there's footage, there's like photographs of these women in bed together in the 50s, which would have been scandalous. Sure. That I don't really understand. Um, You, you know, it, it'd be interesting to know how this came about, you know, like it's a slice of life of them at that time. The photograph is. But like if anyone had ever found that, that would have been they would have been in deep shit. You know, and the the way the society was at that time, and I would like, I would love to know more about what the idea behind that was. You know, just because it, it because they were so guarded otherwise. I feel like they skirted on that on uh, you know living an an authentic life when they you know kind of came out to the person who they were going to be joining in the community, the um, business representative or whoever yeah. it was. So they kind of alluded to that, but then they cut later and they, you know, basically say that it's just easier for them to not tell everyone there, although they probably know, you know, it would have been nice to see like a before and an after. And then these women in their, you know, last stages of life being able to live authentically and and really out and proud would have been, I think, a good sort of, I don't know, just it would have been a good, uh, ending to to the entire right. beginning of the movie where it was all a secret yeah i i can agree with that and i i do think that that is probably something that's hindered by their you know generally reserved nature whether that was just how they always were or if that's how they chose to be you know during you know the idea that that being homosexual would have been frankly a criminal act mm-hmm. in the time they were but you know they're 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 seems to be genuine um you know depictions of their affection you know like i said in those photographs and stuff that i'd like to know more about you know just because you know what that's a, that was a huge risk at the time and they seem to be so guarded otherwise well, that i don't know that that's properly explored well i th- but that's sort of where i i slightly disagree because i do believe they contextualize it because i think when they're going over those photos they are talking about a time where each of them or at least one of them was in a relationship with a man at the time, and then they would go off with each other. And so I think that it does kind of give that idea to everything that I think helps 
put it into perspective. I thought this was this is the photographs when they were living together in like New York. I don't I don't recall them having um, relationships with men outside yeah. of before they met. Remember Pat? All her all her fiancés kept dying. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that was before <laughs> she met Terry. Oh, yeah, all of her fiancés. I don't think that's true, is it? I, I thought that was because they, they were like, each other. like they were like two of them died in World War Two, right? And she wouldn't have met, uh, she wouldn't have met her because uh, uh, I, th- I thought that the there was baseball. something where where they were talking about how a guy was trying to get one of them to move back with them, and and remember they went to go visit one of them over a break. I don't know. It doesn't matter, but I, 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 I really feel like all the and, and maybe I'm messing up the timeline, but I really feel like all the stories about the men in their lives were from before they met. I don't think that's the case, but I will agree to either disagree. either either way. I, I I just either way either way those photographs are something that you know I'd like to know more about the the story behind that, especially since it's so incriminating in that time when that was a criminal act. You know, and what the the mindset of taking a photo a photo like that would have been. Um, I don't know because uh, I mean they they lived together and they they worked together and, and all this other you know they were together all the time and you know were. I wonder if themselves. it was easier because they were women and it was easy to explain away that they were just best friends that they were cousins. Yeah, they wanted to live safe. You know. Yeah, and I think know. there was that one. I think there was one male overlap because uh terry said you know that he would come through the front door and then pat would be coming through the back door with her yeah yeah maybe so i I just i just thought all those stories of like the those poor guys that died horribly (laughs) i thought those were all before they met it's very suspect (laughs) anyway uh what's your grade for a secret love cody uh, I I really liked it. I think it's one of the better things I've seen recently. So I'm giving it a B plus. Jocelyn, I I liked it. I gave it a B. Yeah, I, I'm I'm I talked some negative things about it, but I still think it's it's pretty. Uh, it's it's a very moving documentary. Even if it's even if I just think it's about aging, less about their love story, I still think it's a, a B. And uh, that's available right now on Netflix, so you can go watch that. You don't have to wait for that one like you did for Arkansas. We're going to make you wait for the good ones. <laughs> like Arkansas. Uh, up next, we have Bull. Seems to be a bull rider now. A bull rider, huh? You ain't going to make no money in bull riding. You want to make some money, we can talk about that. You see that bull. You think he's just going crazy, right? wants to kill someone. His mind is going crazy with anger. But when he gets close to you, he closes his eyes. He can't see. And then he's yours. You understand? This is a uh, Texas-produced movie. Uh, shot in around the Houston area, right, Cody? Yeah, yeah, it was shot in the Houston area, and actually this movie was the recipient of the TIFA Award, so you and I are uh, members of the Houston Film Critics Society, and every year we give an award to the best uh, independent film that was produced or shot in Texas, and this was this year's winner. All right, so uh, Jocelyn, what did you think of Bull? Um, I really enjoyed Bull. Um, I, I thought it was a very understated 
film, and I I liked the the performances from the lead actors. Um, I thought it was shot really beautifully, especially those rodeo scenes. Yeah, um, but I thought a lot of the supporting cast really kind of uh, felt a little just awkward and and not really developed. And then um, I wish I wish it had gone more into the bull riding and less into kind of the opioid kind of storylines that it took in, uh, took us into. Um, because uh-huh. I, re- I really thought its strength was the bull riding and 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 showing her, especially as a f- you know a female, um, being interested in it and wanting to become one. I wish there had been more of that. I would I would have loved to see that. So so it's uh, basically the the gist is there's this fourteen uh, year old girl named Crystal who her mother's in jail, and she's living with her grandmother and her little sister and. Uh, she's kind of a troubled kid because they're, they're, you know, they're, they're in like, I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd call them impoverished, but they're very low, um, lower class, you know, economically lower class, you know, they're, they don't, everybody's kind of poor around there. And there's a lot of, um, of opportunities for crime in that, you know, there's like you mentioned, opioid dealing and stuff. And she ends up breaking into this guy's house. Um, who's a professional bull fighter, which is like a rodeo clown, I guess, but not a rodeo clown. Don't call him that. Uh, yeah, um, but uh, it's played. He's played by uh, Ron Morgan, who was in um, uh, Stranger Things most recently that I remember, um, and uh, he was also in um, what's the show? Uh, Luke Cage, and he was in The Punisher as well. But yeah, um, so what did you think of of the storyline itself, Jocelyn? Well, you know, um, I. Again, I just I wish it had had gone more. I felt like there was a fork in the road in the movie and it took one direction and I would have really loved to see it more show him as sort of a mentor to her. Um, But but I I, I mean, it was engaging. I loved I loved the pace. I think uh, for a lot of people that might bother them because it really it is sort of meditative. You are just kind of watching these people live their lives. Um, But for me, it was interesting to kind of have. Uh, some insight into this community where, you know, we don't often see these types of people um, in this, you know, sort of small Texas suburb kind of a thing, you know, like you said, very uh, impoverished and, um, and struggling with the sort of opioid crisis, which I, I I don't know, I, that felt a little tacked on. It just felt kind of easy um, to, to use that as sort of a, not as a self-righteous thing, but as as sort of a getting on the soapbox like this is this is happening in these communities um, where then we get, you know, sort of the supporting like the drug dealer kind of guy and that character. And and uh, and that all just kind of fell flat for me. I would have much rather had seen her kind of go into this this sort of area where where it, it, she's not used to and, and it's it's kind of his his area if that makes sense cody well you know i i think that to to speak to its strengths i think that it is uh it's got that kind of lived in feel um Mm -hmm. where where it's sort of it feels like it's a it's like an established world i'm 90 percent sure a lot of those people are non-actors um so you're getting kind of like the authenticity that comes with using non-actors and um in in those types of scenes that 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 for better or worse creates an authenticity whether or not it it's a convincing performance is something different but um 
And I think that it looks pretty. I think it's well shot. Um, I think the, the problems, uh, the problems I had with it were that I think that it, it struggles a bit with an identity crisis of what type of movie it wants to be. And I don't know that it has a strong collective voice as a result of that. Um, I think that the interplay between Crystal and Abe is, is, is okay. But I also think the, the film has trouble defining whose story it is because I don't think that their relationship is strong enough to, for it to be like about them together. So is it about, you know, is it about Abe who is the, um, you know, who is the bullfighter who is, you know, fighting aging or fighting injuries and stuff like that, but also, you know, taking painkillers and stuff. Is it about Crystal, who is, um, you know, a troubled youth? And I, I think it never really defines that completely. I also think that it sort of hints at a lot of stuff, but never really dives into it to the point where I think you're getting any character development. Like, even on the bull riding thing, her interest in bull riding seems cursory and never goes beyond that. And so I, I, I sort of I sort of struggled with the like if it's about bull riding, she's not really she she talks about being interested in it, but you don't really see it. And then if it's about, you know, it, it turns into like a drug dealing thing, but then it turns into, you know, about, you know, potentially like painkiller addictions and that like and I think that it sort of spreads itself too thin that instead of being about anything, it's about like ten things on a very uh like on a, on a very cursory level and i feel like as a result um I, I don't think that it's 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 got enough there in its relationships and its storylines to to make it feel like it's a completely cohesive thing well the relationship between crystal and abe is i, I think like you said it's not very well defined right like there's there's you know there's the tropes that it doesn't fall into, you know, she's not redeemed by him, he's not redeemed by her, but it just doesn't seem like there's much there. Um, You know, it is interesting that, I think an interesting world that it dives into that we've never really seen is like the Black Rodeo circuit, which is what he's part of, and what his, um, well, not what he's part of, but what he, he kind of came from, because he's a professional bull rider, uh, PBR rodeo um, uh, bullfighter at the whatever that tiny san antonio arena was supposed to be <laughs> freeman um it, i don't think it wasn't even the freeman i don't no. think um it, yeah it said on the on the little uh padding and stuff it said colorado springs they didn't hide try to hide that so <laughs> oh okay no that was the second one no it was the both first... of them oh really yeah they, oh, okay. they both said it i looked for it in both of them oh, okay anyway um i i don't know that um it really explores that world enough. And I think it opens up an interesting kind of point of view to maybe people that don't necessarily know something like that exists. And I think that, um, you know, this is a, uh, um, I guess sort of casually racist, uh, uh, town that they're in. There are some slurs just uttered, um, willy nilly, but, uh, I, I don't, I don't know that it ever really kind of, calcifies into anything other than it, like it's it's meditative but it doesn't end up telling you what it's really meditating on it just sort of comes to an end mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of a, a a it feels a little cheated like it feels like a, like we're cheated out of something um i i don't know it's it's very well made 
and it feels very well lived in, but I don't know that it really goes anywhere, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think a word to describe it, I would say, is meandering. I, I just don't think that it... Because I do agree, I agree with Jocelyn in that, in that the, the idea behind a like being a girl and being interested in bull riding, I think would be a great and interesting yeah. story to tell. I just don't think that it tells that story. I don't, I don't think that I don't, I don't think cause, cause when I, cause again, she, she does it once, but she's like talking about it multiple times, but like the interest that comes in it, like there's like a lot of times when you see something like that, you'll see even like a metaphorical reason why someone wants to, wants to get into something like that, that it might be unusual but even that is not really there. And, and, and I, I never got the sense that she was like truly interested in it for any particular reason or yeah. really ingrained herself in, in that so kind of. I think they were trying to establish that, uh, this leads to sort of her finding her confidence later in the movie. Um, but they didn't draw, you know, a direct line to it. They didn't say, you know, this is because of that, that, that now she's able to speak up for herself or that maybe she's learning how to be more confident in herself. Um, and, and I thought that was an interesting idea. If, if that had been the case, if they had maybe made that clearer, that, that it was because of this new thing that she's learning and seeing, um, from this, you know, kind of old cowboy guy that is teaching her, you know, right from wrong, that that has led to her making better decisions in her life and, and having this newfound confidence and that kind of a thing. Um, and it just, it, they never, they never really kind of make that clear, um, or, or, or do anything else with it. Oh, well, and I think the grossest stuff happens to her in the last part of the movie, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the being recruited to sell opioids and then the whatever i assume terrible prostitution that the character's hinting at in that last confrontation with the drug dealer right, which, which she, she just stands sort of up against and and again is like sort of i think because of the confidence that she has now from knowing this man who has sort of shown her the way kind of a, a thing yeah but then that sort of like well no this drug dealer's still gonna try to get his money from you right yeah like I mean. it's not it, it just doesn't I think it. I think the addition of the drug dealer was not necessary. Totally agree. It was, yeah, um, kind of like an after-school special. All of a sudden, yeah. I mean, the guy's kind of hovering around the edges, being creepy the whole yeah. time, and then, um, yeah. Anyway, what's your grades for Bull, Jocelyn? Um, I gave it a B plus. After all that, I think it was still an enjoyable experience. It was beautiful uh, to watch, and and I enjoyed it. Cody. Uh, I, I think that there's a lot to like here and, you know, it feels like a, uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure if it's, so it's directed by Annie Silverstein. I don't know if it's her it's first her film. Okay. It does. Yeah. And so it feels like a good, a first film where someone's establishing their style and their, and their voice, but isn't quite there. And I don't think I can get in good conscience recommend it. So I'm giving it a C plus. I'm going to give it a B minus. Um, I think it's, it's well put together. I think there's just. There's there's kind of a, a something missing. It feels like a downer, uh, and I think that's that comes a, a little from the first film um, school of thought. You know, like I've got to make something that, that that's different that breaks tropes, and I I don't think it it successfully does that. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and move on to our last movie, The Wretched. Dad, mom's being weird. Mom's always been weird. 
are you doing up here? Dylan! Don't let her in. My son likes to play hide and seek. Can you bring him down? I didn't say he was here. You're a very stupid boy. Can I help you? It's Dylan home? Dylan, Dylan, down here, baby. You know, your son Dylan? I don't have a son. He had no idea who I was talking about. Listen to mommy. He's gone. I know it. I'd like to report a missing kid. Are you okay, Ben? Where is your sister? I need you to tell me what's going on. Ben! This is a horror movie of sorts uh, that has been um, getting some some buzz because uh, the release strategy of this, it's released on VOD, but it was also playing at drive-ins. Yeah. Did you hear this? Yeah. Like the across the country that are actually still open, it was playing at, a dry, at drive-ins. Um, but we watched it on VOD. So, Cody, what did you think of The Wretched? Well, it was it was certainly not what I was expecting, I think. Um I, I didn't know much about it, though a mutual friend of ours had had uh very viciously complained about it, um, I guess separately to both of us. <laughs> uh, sometime yes, that's early, that's our friend James, yes. Yeah, sometime earlier in the week and um and so I, I I was I was prepared for something I was going to hate. And I didn't hate it. I, I think that um it 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 sort of toes the line between um, between being, uh, pretty good and then kind of being iffy. And I think, it, uh, it does that in a few different ways. I think that, um, I don't have the IMDb in front of me, but the, the, the main kid actor or the teenager actor, do you have his name handy? Uh, I'll get it. Keep going. I don't think he's very good. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's a great actor. I think that a lot of his, uh, dialogue feels really stiff and, and stilted. Um, but I think that what what the wretched kind of does is it presents it, it presents some sort of tell uh, take on like a uh, like a possession type movie um, having to do with taking children and um, it's not necessarily the most unique premise or setup um, that happens. But I think it takes a couple of interesting swings along the way. Um, I really like that. Um, I, I'm a big fan of of especially with horror when um there's a good amount of uh practical effects that are used it's it's part of the reason why i think like the thing holds up as being a really scary movie is because it's like it's like it's like it's sticky and gooey like <laughs> all of the special effects in 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 the thing uh and it just looks gross i mean i've i've been more like mortified by the thing than i have with anything else cg related um and i think that it's a, does really good like body horror um, gross out practical effects stuff. I think that stuff is really effective. Um, and I think that the storyline itself is, is interesting enough. I think, um, the big thing is, is, is everything sort of hinges on a reveal that happens in, in later in the movie. And I like the idea of it is really interesting, actually. And, and the idea of the, of the reveal and, and the twist, if you will, is um is not a bad one and i think that it plays out okay but the second you start scrutinizing it it makes no sense <laughs> and and i think the the fact that it makes no sense sort of undercuts it a little bit 
but I feel like it's it's um it's executed pretty well. And I think I think this is um so it's directed by a pair of brothers, right? The Pierce brothers. Um, um. Um, uh, yeah, it's Brett Pierce and Drew T. Pierce. Yeah, and I, I felt like, um, and I'm just going to confirm that it is a debut, but for a debut film, especially in the horror genre, I think that it is, it's pretty well done. And I think that they, they show some good visual flair and storytelling. Um, and, uh, and, and I think as a first film, it is impressive. It's not their first film. So, right. Strike yeah. everything I just said. But anyway, um, I do think I do think that it is uh it, it's visually slick. I, I like the way that it looks. I think the characters along the way are um you know they vary in in terms of their um success um especially acting wise. But um I, I have to say that uh it kept my interest throughout and um and then once you get to the reveal, I think that even though I like what they were trying to do, I think that they they didn't they didn't make it make enough sense for me. I can see that. Jocelyn. Yeah, I think when you have low expectations, the reveal is pretty, uh, not profound, but you're pretty impressed by the confidence with which they, you know, they do this because um, it is a little, uh, you know, out of out of nowhere. And then you look back and you realize, oh, okay, I, without thinking of it too much, it makes sense. And I think um, I, hearing it opened at drive-ins also makes sense because um, I was really expecting kind of a B-movie kind of campy fun and it's less of that. It's more just sort of your average horror movie. Um, but then again, with the, the couple twists that they have along the way, I think it was fun. Um, I could have gone more gory and more more campy, but I don't. I don't know that that. Um, so let's just say that the the notion of this. Uh, this horror like the the whatever the the wretched is is sort of um playing with people's memories right yep um and, and i i think that's an interesting concept to for a horror movie because I, i've had this conversation with <laughs> i with with uh people my wife most recently about kind of the like memories that you have as a child like, do you have those memories or do you have them because you know you should have them? Mm -hmm. Like, like you can say, like, I remember being in my crib. Like, well, do you or do you think that you do because you know you were in a crib? You know what I mean? So, like, how memory cannot really be be uh, necessarily something you can you can depend on as an accurate portrayal. And I think that's a that's an interesting concept for a horror movie. Again, I think the reveal is written in a way that doesn't, um, you know, it, you kind of look back on, on things and you realize that, you know, hey, this doesn't make any sense based on the timeline of the film. But it is a kind of cool thing to to, to think about. Um, that said, I, I don't really have a problem with the movie other than that. I think it's, I think it's fine. I don't think it's any kind of uh, revelatory thing like if you're like uh, your next was a great horror film. They was kind of took things and turned them on its ear with the, the final girl who kicks everyone's ass. Um, and what was the one from uh, just this past year um, with Samara Weaving? Oh, Ready or Not. Ready or Not. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great movie. Um, you know, kind of changing expectations. Um, again, this is this one's fine. I don't think it's anything super great. I think it's probably a little underexplained, frankly. 
Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it gets too far up its own ass when it comes to figuring this out. I think it could have gotten a little farther up its own ass to tell us what's <laughs> happening. Um, no, uh, no by the time way, for that. There's no time for that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> by the way, I just looked up some of the cast. Um, Piper Curta plays Mallory, like the girl that, um, kind of the, the love interest in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked up her her credits on IMDb, and her next film is American Pie Presents Girls Rules. Oh, <laughs> nice. and I didn't know they were still making those direct to video American Pie sequels. Some big so, things coming for her in her future. Yeah, I didn't yeah. mind the little teenage actor kid. I thought I thought he was okay, and I I liked it His, when it sort of became the suspicious neighbor, you know, voyeuring and watching and with his binoculars. Yeah, I thought that was uh, kind of fun. I kind of wish that was Paul- baked more into the story. I totally agree. That would have been. Would, yeah, it's a very rear window that. take that I, I think is a little. Um, but if but they could have uh, they could have put like a voyeuristic spin on it that I think could have made everything a little bit more interesting. I mm-hmm. think. It, yeah, explored that a little more. Mm-hmm. He's in Hell or High Water. Yeah, he plays oh. the, uh, the son John of Chris Paul Pine. Howard. I think. Yeah. Wow, that's a movie I need to revisit because I didn't like it the first time around. Really. Ah. It was I my know. it was my number one movie that Loved year. I, I'm it aware. Was a great movie. <laughs> I just felt it was too derivative of like No Country for Old Men, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the asshole. Uh, anyway, so the the wretched, <laughs> the, it's the wretched. Uh, what's your grade for the wretched, Jocelyn? I gave it a B minus. Cody, you know I'm I was torn between B B minus and C plus of that being the threshold for recommendation, and I think ultimately what it comes down to is there's so many bad horror movies that i think that when you know we should point out when one doesn't actively suck so I, i'm giving it a b minus uh yeah i think a b minus is pretty fair f- for that too is that three-way b minus yes, yeah. oh wow look at that uh all right that's gonna do it for this week next week uh a shit ton of other stuff cody what's on the list so uh next week we have um a documentary called spaceship earth um, which was the a documentary about the Biosphere 2 experiment from the early 90s. It's um, also a ride at Epcot Center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, How to Build a Girl, <laughs> a Beanie Feldstein movie. Uh, we have a documentary that I hope we can cover called Rewind. Um, and then we have <laughs> uh, we have uh, The Wrong Missy, uh, the David Spade, uh, Lauren Lapkus Netflix movie. <laughs> that I am yes. genuinely curious about as they we talked about it. I don't know if we talked about it here or just um, in instant message, but where they're pulling every de-aging trick in the book to try to make David Spade not look 55. Have you seen the trailer, Jocelyn? No, I haven't. It's very unnerving because it looks like they're trying to recreate Tommy Boy era David Spade. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't really understand why. I think it's because he's 25 years older than Lawrence Lapkus, probably. Maybe, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I like David Spade. Um, I don't know that I've liked his movies, but I, I think he's a, a really great stand-up. And I, the what I saw of Lights Out, I really liked. But this is another uh, Sandler uh, Netflix movie, right? Um, I don't know if it's a like you mean like is it a Happy Madison? Like a Happy movie? Madison? That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it is. It has to be with Nick Swartz and and David Spade and Rob Schneider. It has to be. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming so. And, and, and I was told, uh, just for Inside Baseball, um, I tried to get a, a screener set up for it, and uh, 
And this is the first time ever for a Netflix thing that they've told me that they don't know if they're handing out screeners for it. So, <laughs> so take that as you will <laughs> uh, for the quality. But hey, I see. I'm looking at the IMDb page, and it looks like Vanilla Ice is in the movie. So, it's got to be a fucking Happy Madison movie then, because he was in. It is. Um, I just I, I verified okay. it. Okay. God, that's such in. a recipe for those movies. It's like take a couple actors, take an aging rapper that everyone remembers from the '90s, and like mix it all up. Yeah, that's I, I thought Adam Sandler special. Right. He was the the Vanilla Ice scene was legitimately the best part of uh, That's My Boy. I will defend that movie. I think it's really funny. <laughs> I didn't see that Just because it has your boy Adam Sandberg, Andy Sandberg, and Adam Sandberg, Andy Sandberg. Yeah. Anyway, um, so if you want to uh, reach us, you can email us at podcastcinesnob.net. You can find us on Twitter at Cinesnob, Facebook Cinesnob Critic. You can listen to our other podcasts um, that we've been cranking out here. Uh, first of all, uh, re MCU with Cody and I uh, discussing. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're re-watching them. We just released our latest episode, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, with uh, uh, covering Iron Man 3 with special guest comedian Jerry Rocha, who, of course, has been on every one of our shows that we've done at least once or twice. Um, he's a big Iron Man 3 fan and a big Shane Black fan. So he had a different perspective on the film than I think you or I did, Cody. Mm-hmm. Um so that is out now. Coming out uh, tomorrow, Monday, May 4th, is uh, our latest episode of Quarren Stream, the uh, show where Cody and I talk to people in the entertainment industry about what they're doing during the quarantine here, um, and then give them some movie recommendations, um, and they give us one. Uh, first episode of uh, our conversation with comedian Eddie Pence is out tomorrow. Uh, Eddie is also... Um, it's all really uh, sort of incestual here. It's all from another podcast <laughs> with Cody. Yeah. Cody and Jerry and Eddie are on the Ramble um, together. That's what it's called, right? The Ramble? Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Um, Eddie, it was a great conversation. Um, this first episode's a lot of fun, I think. Uh, just sort of talking about uh, Eddie's take on, on doing comedy in the quarantine. And uh, Eddie has a stand-up show on Zoom coming out on May 5th. So you can get tickets for that at the Nowhere Comedy Club. Yes, I believe it's called. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, please, uh, if you've listened to those shows, please uh, give us a five star review and leave us a review. Uh, it'll help us get seen in the old algorithm of whatever Apple Podcasts is doing. Uh, you can also find that wherever else you get podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, um, a tape left in a record shop. Um, I don't know. Uh, Jocelyn, do you, uh, do you have anything going on outside of, uh, sitting at home and in the quarantine? Now I'm just looking forward to all these movies that we get to watch. That's oh, for sure. Fun it's time. kind of keeping me sane. All right. So you're like, um, you're not able to like, your job is not happening right now, correct? Right. Yeah. So I do school communications. So, <laughs> so there's not a lot to communicate exactly. about. So you're just sitting at home. Uh, what what have you been watching uh, other than these like before you started watching these films what were you watching yeah so um, I've been kind of getting into the plot against America the HBO show oh yeah the guys that did the wire and um, it's been really good and uh, a little Casa de Papel have y'all heard of the Spanish uh, it's Money Heist it's the Netflix show no in English it's 
money heist. It's kind of a talk about Tarantino ripoffs. It's kind of a heist movie where each of them have state names instead of colors, basically. So that was hard to get past <laughs> at first. But it's- after that, it, it's been great. And then just because everything's so scary and horrible, I've been, I've been rewatching New Girl on Netflix Aww. from the beginning and, and yeah, that just is really that helps with the anxiety a lot. <laughs> I really liked New Girl, and I really fell off of it. Like I, I something happened, and I got lost, and I never caught up. I wouldn't even That's call something it a I want to revisit. Pleasure. I think it's just a pleasure. No, I think it's great. I love I love uh, Jake Johnson in that show. Yeah. Um, and Max Greenfield is. I, I just watched the movie with Max Greenfield. One we're going to talk about um, in a different episode of another podcast, but. Uh, I just saw Max Greenfield in another movie, and I th- I like Max Greenfield a lot too in that show. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's really well done. We, Cody and I watched a Jake Johnson movie with him like sitting two rows away from us, like looking pissed off the whole time. <laughs> I forgot about that. And uh, that's kind of his mo, though. You know, he's kind of a grumpy old man in a young person's body. Yeah, he's great in uh, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Um, yeah, anything else before we wrap this thing up? Uh, I don't think so. Thank you. All right. Cool. Well, Jocelyn, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. All right. On that note, I'm Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania. I'm Jocelyn Duran. Thank you for listening to the Cine Snob Podcast. To read reviews, interviews, and more, visit cinesnob.net. See you next week.